0: I'm Wendy Michelle, personal trainer and nutritionist, turned researcher, innovator, and precision wellness specialist. Welcome to Whole, Healthy, and Free. This podcast is all about equipping you with cutting edge tools and information for accomplishing your health goals and becoming your best version of you. I have collectively spent over 20 years behind the scenes in clinical healthcare in food and supplement manufacturing, in alternative medicine and fitness marketing. What I've seen behind closed doors and experienced in real life has provided me with an education no formal textbook would dare to write about. From it all, I learned that health is much easier than it has been presented to be. People are capable of way more than they realize. And the majority of what masquerades as healthy is commonly what actually contributes to illness. I break it all down and bring it all to light for the sole purpose of giving you your power back so you can reclaim your health to live whole, healthy, and free. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Whole, Healthy, and Free. Emphasis on free. (laughs) It's actually relatively difficult to get whole and healthy without our God-given freedoms and our ability to ask questions. And I am super honored to have a guest with me today, who has become a friend and shares my heart for patient advocacy, which brings me so much hope in this particular industry. We're going to discuss diagnostics, how to best uncover what conditions might be in your way and preventing you from accomplishing your health goals. If uh, if you or I don't know anyone you love or know has ever gone to the doctor with a symptom or an issue that the doctors just cannot seem to identify through labs, you know, and you, you know, you don't feel good, but they say that you look amazing according to your test results, but you leave feeling frustrated because you know that that's not the case. Well, if that's ever happened, then this show is for you. Joining me today is Dr. Thomas J. Lewis. He is a medical scientist. He holds a PhD in chemistry from MIT and certification from the Harvard School of Public Health. He's an entrepreneur and healthcare professional with expertise in toxic substances, drug development, biotechnology, health technology, and medical protocol development. Since 2004, he has worked closely with senior researchers and clinicians at Harvard Medical School and has developed a program for chronic disease, root cause prevention, screening, diagnosis, and treatment. Chronic diseases, including Alzheimer's disease and the most serious eye diseases, macular degeneration and glaucoma have been of a particular focus. He has several patents and numerous publications. The most recent patent involves identification and use of both physiological and pathological biomarkers that are able to accurately predict future morbidity and mortality. This risk is presented by way of a single risk value coined your chronic disease temperature. He's also created a software-based medical evaluation form that's designed to determine the current and future risk of accelerated aging and chronic disease in individuals. And this is called the chronic disease assessment. Dr. Lewis has also written three books, The End of Alzheimer's, The Brain and Beyond, Quarterback Your Own Health, How to Take and Lower Your Chronic Disease Temperature, and Uncover Chronic Inflammation and Hidden Infections. Dr. Lewis, I'm so excited to have you today. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. How are you?
1: I'm great. It's been my pleasure to listen to that intro, but making sure that people don't think that I'm a drug guy. (laughs) Sometimes pharmaceuticals, when used intelligently, actually add value, but it's always about the risk-benefit analysis, which the existing system doesn't do.
0: Yes. Well, just sort of
1: just to that that clarification, because most of what I do is natural.
0: Oh, yes. Well, and I mean, I feel like we have so much to talk about. Um, I am fortunate in that obviously we've had several conversations. And so this will be the first time I think a lot of people are hearing from you. But from my vantage point, I know there's a lot more to what you're doing. uh, And that's why I've been so looking forward to to chatting with you and sharing just your expertise, um, the things that you've been working on, the things that you've developed with my audience. And I really want to dig into uh, the chronic disease temperature and chronic disease assessment a little bit more in detail. But before we get into those, I'd really love to lay some groundwork just for reference, because I think most people are, they're, primarily unaware of the current way that labs are chosen, valued, their ranges, what they actually mean, um, what are some of the ways that, the labs that are currently utilized, currently focused on, um, what are some ways that those fall short, in your opinion?
1: Oh, my goodness, Wendy, that's, that's several books, but <laughs> really, you know, when you go to your doctor's office and they run uh, comp- a, m- a metabolic panel in your lipids, Why? Why just those? Why not a C-reactive protein, a homocysteine? Some looking at hormones, looking at cytokines, looking at inflammatory markers. So it's all done through so-called consensus standard of care, and it really dates back to the nineteen early nineteen hundreds with the Flexner report, Rockefeller, Rothschilds, things like that that really started controlling medicine. And then a major inflection point was with. Uh, universal health care that does sort of exist in America for, for older people, Medicare, where doctors started selling medicine to the insurance company, to the payer. And once they started doing that, and then in the 70s, 80s, HMOs, really the tail was being, uh, the dog was being wagged by the tail. Um, whatever that expression is, I might've gotten it wrong, but hey, I'm a scientist, what do you think? You know, scatterbrain. But the <laughs> point is, when payers started controlling what doctors could do, they started limiting our freedom as to what we would get from our doctors. Because, so for example, homocysteine—it's a brilliant test for looking at vascular risk—and you can only get that test if you are already sick with a insurance coded number that allows for that test. But somehow you can do a lipid panel without a code. You can do a a comprehensive uh, metabolic panel without a code. And really what it boils down to today is even 95% or more healthy people have an abnormal total cholesterol or lipid number. So they're a nice candidate for a drug. The doctor gives you the medication, check, you're all set. They've done their job and you move on. Glucose, A1c, same thing. It's elevated, you get on metformin, the doctor's done their job, and there's no liability. So it's both a payer, but also liability has a big play in this. So, for example, if a doctor runs a test that you request that they really don't understand very well, and it's outside of a, a normal range, and the doctor doesn't come up with a protocol to lower that value they are at liability risk, financial risk, and their license is at risk. So they're very comfortable running these panels that are relatively meaningless and easy to prescribe or ascribe a a drug to that protects them. So there's it's, and it's more complicated than that, lobbyists and all that, that good thing. So, but that has squashed what I call health freedom, Wendy, because people getting labs measured in their doctor's office are not being well characterized in terms of what their health is. So that is literally stealing health freedom. We've lost, we've insidiously lost health freedom since the Flexner Report, Medicare, HMOs, lawyers getting more involved in, in lawsuits against doctors, um, and then big, big lobbying, lobbying and big money Controlling what doctors do. You know, in 1980, the FDA allowed medical school, uh, medical or uh, pharmaceutical companies to start getting involved in medical school curriculum and education. So if you look at that, it's not, it's not one thing. It's like a chronic disease. It's multifactorial. So we have our healthcare system today, because of that, is equivalent to a cancer.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's not something to take lightly, and I it definitely expands beyond just what I think most people are are defining health freedom as. I mean, you know, when I was sick, I, I didn't even feel like I had the freedom to ask the questions that I had, but it clearly goes much deeper than that, and uh, another question that I have is in regards to the ranges, and this may go back a little bit to what you were saying earlier. But I noticed as I was having to become my own health investigator, (laughs) that ranges differ between the different doctors and the different labs that are running them. I'm not really sure how that all shakes out in the background, but what is that about? Why, when I just look at something as simple and a standard test, like a, a TSH for that matter, why one lab and one doctor versus another, why is that range different?
1: Well, they're called reference ranges or reference intervals. And once again, I think it has a lot to do with protecting doctors. So for example, you go in and you get your white blood cell counts measured and white blood cell counts are extremely important. They're, they're the primary, white blood cells reflect the primary response of your body, your innate immunity. To some outside insult and it's almost always infectious in nature and so white blood cell count ranges used to be more narrow you know because i've worked with doctors and one of my mentors is 88 and still publishing papers and he said a long time ago the range for a white blood cell count was much more narrow um but so now they've they've expanded and they're not science-based. So if you go to something like a lab test online and look at what a reference range means, it says a normal result in one lab may be abnormal in another. How, how can that be if it's the same person going to two different labs with the same physiology? So that just tells you right out of the block that is not science-based. Also, they also say a normal result does not promise health. So what that tells you is you can have a laboratory value within the normal range and it's actually predictive of poor health. But when you go to your doctor and your lab looks normal, they tell you you're fine. And one of the things that drives my passion to change medicine, not just work with individuals, which I enjoy doing as well, is because so many people that come to me tell me that they have these issues, mood disorders, pain, whatever, and their doctor dismisses it. And I've seen through COVID, a lot of doctors say, you know, you just have, it's just anxiety. Take this mood med, this, this addictive SSRI drug. So it, that's despicable and, and that has to change. And then the other thing is an abnormal result does not mean you're sick, but that's because some of their, some of their reference ranges are completely wrong. So for example, total cholesterol. First of all, total cholesterol is a misdefinition of the word. Total cholesterol does not even include the cholesterol molecule. It's the sum of your low-density lipoprotein, LDL, your high-density lipoprotein, HDL, and 20% of your triglycerides. Where's, where's cholesterol in that number? There isn't. And the proper ranges for total cholesterol, their true proper scientific ranges, don't even overlap with what the standard of care gives you as their reference or normal range so there's a huge disparity and all i can say is one thing the reference ranges that you get that allow a doctor to make a decision about your health are largely wrong largely wrong and so what i've done as a scientist and working with two harvard docs and you know we could say harvard that's a it's a corrupt entity and it certainly is veritas means truth that's harvard's logo mm. and they they know how to manipulate the truth with statistics but the, my two harvard docs were total outcasts and renegades at harvard and harvard does have a lot of brilliant people so what what we've done is we've completely redesign what normal is based on science. And what I'm writing right now in this book called Health Freedom Lost is that longevity, how long you live, and some people think if you live to 100 you're on these tubes and machines and life support. That's actually a, a wrong assumption. The longer you live, the even longer you live healthy. Think about someone who's 60. If they're going to live to 100, it's 60 they're doggone healthy but if someone's going to die at 80 which is above the average life expectancy in america which is around 78 they already have lots of aches and pains and other chronic conditions already matriculating so there's a very clear co- connection between longevity and health so what we did from a science perspective is we looked at all these biomarkers through the published literature which doctors almost never read you know Medical research and medical clinical delivery are two separate industries, very different. And the only thing that intersects those two disciplines is a drug company and a pharmaceutical. Um, but otherwise, they are they're in separate, they're in separate worlds. But what we did is we looked at biomarkers to see where the published literature shows the beginning of an increased risk of dying young early mortality. And that's that's which, that is what we based our lab normal values on. And so let's just take one of the most basic things, a white blood cell count. White blood cell count costs less than $2. So it's not an expensive test. And every doctor should be running it, but more importantly, interpreting it properly. So I've seen reference ranges in the standard of care, Mayo Clinic, LabCorp, Quest, others, somewhere between 3500 and 11,000, the numbers are irrelevant, it's just the number of uh, white uh, white blood cells found in a certain volume of blood. And now I'm seeing things like 4,600 to 11,000. The real range for perfectly healthy based on mortality is 4,000 to 5,800. But then you can go to really optimal health. And when I look at people that are really optimally healthy, their white blood cell count is somewhere between 4,200 and 4,600. Now, let me just give you an example of a piece of data that we use, Women's Health Initiative. Huge, huge study. 138,000 plus or minus women followed, um, measured and then followed to see what happens. And so what that study showed is if if you have a group of women with a white blood cell count of 6,700, which is well within the 4,000 to uh, 11,000 range of the standard of care. And then you have another set of women with a white blood cell count of 4,700. The ones at 6,700 have twice the cardiovascular mortality in six years compared to the ones at 4,700. So wouldn't you wanna know if you saw a white blood cell count of 6,700 that you're at risk of dying from heart disease? And if you can lower that number from 6,700 to 4,700, you've reduced your risk of dying of heart disease by 50%. Yet both those groups of women are considered completely normal. Matter of fact, 6,700 is like in the middle of the scale. So if you saw 6,700, you'd say, hey, by golly, I am perfect. (laughs) So it's simple examples like that. You know, the medical literature has a tremendous database of information on the relationship between biomarkers and early mortality or survival and it's it's not a complicated job it's just a time consuming job to go through all of them and see what they're all see what the story of all these studies are t- telling and then create a science based scale and that's what we've done
0: I think that this is such critical information. I'm just listening to you go through stuff that I've been dealing with for over a decade now and how I wish I would have known you 10 years ago, <laughs> first of all. Um, but also just the people that I encounter as well who, you know, may have just a, a goal of maybe weight loss or, you know, they're, they don't really have anything to complain about but in the process of establishing a protocol for them for weight management or just, you know, optimizing their wellness. I'm very fortunate. A lot of the people that I work with feel good and they just want to push that boundary on the, you know, to the upper side of that scale. But so often the things that they do struggle with, there's just been no answer for. So they've just accepted it and, moved on and said, well, you know, they, my doctor says that's fine. Uh, I feel like not only the people who just want to be more optimal are super limited because of this front end work, the diagnostic portion. I can't even imagine the numbers of people who are chronically ill and unaware, but have been told you're fine. Even though they know subconsciously they're not, they, they're, certain that there's something off and they've just had to accept that it's all in their head. So I really feel like this particular episode is very timely. I think it's going to really change a lot of people's lives. And I would love for you to talk about how you work with people, what you do with these tools that you've developed. If you can take me through what that process looks like so people have an idea of what options they have now that they know.
1: Well, it really looks like what they're seeing on a regular basis, but we're characterizing people much more accurately. My mentor at Harvard called it the, a proper workup. And so, what Dr. Trump, my main mentor at Harvard, told me 20 years ago, he said, "You know, the big classification of individuals in healthcare, or what what he calls the apparently well." So, what you have is truly well, apparently well, and then people diagnosed with disease. And the light bulb went on on my, off in my head about 10, 15 years ago. It said, look, you're not either healthy or sick. We all lie on a health continuum or a health disease continuum. And then when you look at it from a diagnostic perspective and the 77,000 ICD-10 insurance codes for diseases, you realize that, you know, those are artificial. Those are human-made terms, diabetes, multiple sclerosis. What does multiple sclerosis mean? Many sclerotic plaques, okay? Is that really a, a good diagnosis to tell you what to do? But the point is, you don't just, you don't just catch multiple sclerosis. You don't just catch Alzheimer's disease. It's a slow, insidious uh, matriculation into that condition. So the health disease continuum explains that extraordinarily well, where you're, you're okay today, and let's look at something like dementia, and then you're beginning to see minor symptoms of, of memory recall issues, and then you migrate into full-blown Alzheimer's at some point. You really just slid up a continuum of neurodegeneration or Alzheimer's. And we can detect that Well, before symptoms emerge, there are signs and clues in your blood for cancer, for diabetes, for Alzheimer's, for autoimmune disease, for cardiovascular disease, long before a symptom matriculates. So, the key thing is looking at those labs for the the smoldering that's occurring, not the big flaming fire. You know, 90% of diseases are chronic and they matriculate over 10 years, 20 years, even they can even start from birth. We won't get into that, but congenital infections can lead to a lot of downstream chronic diseases much later in life when you become vulnerable. A, cl- a classic example would be shingles, the herpes zoster virus where, you know, when, you, when you're immune compromised at the age of 60, you, you know, you might get shingles, something like, something like that. But so what we've done is simply, we have a much better scale for measuring, we, we do deeper evaluation in terms of the markers, what, what they're telling us about mortality, but we also go broader. We run many biomarkers that a lot of doctors haven't even heard of, like the arthrogenic index of plasma, a great predictor of what's going on in the vessels, uh, the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, an extremely important prognosticator for cancer risk and cancer survival that very few people are running. but. The neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio is something we can help you modify without drugs, help you improve that that score, which helps you improve your prognosis, whether you have cancer or whether you're concerned about, you know, the the big C as a disease. But the other thing we do is we, we run a very detailed risk profile. You know, physiological changes that we see in labs just don't come out of the blue. They come out of risks. And I just wrote about genetics. so even this even the CDC NIH says that humans are ninety nine point nine percent the same. And what they say is that it's this point one that really is the difference between when do your health and my health? And we know that's completely absurd. It's epigenetics and epigenetics are completely driven by environment, mm-hmm. risk factors that you um, have in your life from who you chose as your parents to what you choose for your food and exercise habits and where you live can affect it. Uh, Geography, all all kinds of factors boil into that, not this 0.1% differential. Twin studies have shown that, where twins separated from birth are as different as the environments unto which they wound up being in. So measuring, asking questions, interviewing about risks, are very important part of what we do. So, risks beget changes in physiology. Changes in physiology beget changes in pathology, which is tissue. And that doesn't happen right away. So, you can have elevation in, in physiological markers and have no manifestation of disease. But if it perpetuates long enough, then we cross some artificial line on the health disease continuum that doctors call a specific disease out of their Rolodex of 77,000 possibilities in the, in the biller pair ICD-10 coding system. So we measure those two very accurately. And then we have a whole suite of protocols that we've developed that link back to different biomarkers and different risks. So a, a simple example is someone has, um, regular or irregular diarrhea, constipation, something like that. When you when you have something like that going on, your gut is not optimal. And if your gut is not optimal, that's an extremely important area to work on because you are not what you eat, you are what you absorb. So I tell people Wendy to do a very simple experiment. Take three glasses of water and pretend the water is your digestive system. It's a very weak digestive system indeed because your stomach has organisms that help break down food and strong acid but in glass one put in sugar in glass two put in a cheap over-the-counter granola bar and in glass three put a piece of celery and uh, come back in an hour and uh, sit from the glass of sugar and it's going to taste very sweet all the sugar is dissolved it's absorbed You have to liquefy any food in your stomach in three and a half hours in order for it to be absorbed into your bloodstream and the intestines. Now sip on the granola bar. You'll look, it's cloudy. Some of the solid stuff, it's settled to the bottom, but if you taste it, it's sweet. So the sugars in that granola bar liquefied and are easily absorbed, but some of the more solid things, maybe some of the more beneficial things have not. And then you go to the celery and you Look at it and pull it out of the glass, and it's just a wet piece of celery. Nothing's broken down. You've extracted nothing of value from that food. So the point is something like diarrhea or constipation, which signal your digestion isn't optimal, you are still able to absorb junk like sugars, but you're hard pressed to absorb the important micronutrients, which you need to rebuild all your tissue in your body. See the micronutrients support the enzymes in your body, which are your body's carpenters. And every day, cells are broken down and cells are rebuilt. Cells are broken down. And in a classic example, if I can get a graphic, you poop brown for a reason. Those are red blood cells that your body is replacing with new ones. And your kidneys pull the iron out to recycle it. When you pull the iron out of a red blood cell, that red blood cell turns into a brown blood cell. And that's one of the contributors to you know the brown in your in your stool, but it just shows that every cell in our body, including red blood cells, are being rebuilt. So you need to provide those micronutrients. So for so if someone says they have constipation, and then we have a very we have a very unique interpretation of of an extraordinarily simple and low cost biomarker called the erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Very few doctors run this anymore, but it really explains. Absorption, better than any other marker. So if you have symptoms of the gut and you have an elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate, then we have a protocol built for you that we've proven over the years, gets rid of constipation, gets rid of diarrhea, and from an objective perspective, brings this erythrocyte sedimentation rate down into a no excess mortality or optimal range. And um, then everybody's happy. And normally when you fix something like the absorption and improve the erythrocyte sedimentation rate, many other biomarkers that you may be chasing to improve will just suddenly improve. One example is homocysteine. Very important marker of cardiovascular health. And a lot of functional doctors will throw B vitamins at it to try to get it to, to lower, but what I found is that people that have a little bit of malabsorption have a hard time absorbing B vitamins. And when we fix absorption, digestion, then they're absorbing those B vitamins and the homocysteine comes down with no other treatment. So there's just sort of a a very simple example, but an extremely important one, because once again, you are not what you eat, you are what you absorb. Yeah, um, wow
0: another another important element i think and you touched on this is that there's protocols for your findings and that's i do believe that a lot of people are hesitant to even have labs drawn up or investigate their health or just get a picture of their current health state because well if it comes back unfavorable or if there's something that I don't know, it shows up They they're afraid that drugs are the only option for them or that there's not going to be one at all. The fact that not only do you, are you looking at things more specifically? I love that you just, it sounds so very simple. It's just a proper workup. <laughs> it's funny that we even have to have that. These, these conversations are a mind blend, like, wow, guys, wait till you hear this podcast about a proper workup. Um, But either either way, um, the fact that you're able to also implement immediate strategy so that what is found can be corrected or reversed or, you know, whatever needs to be done in order to really accomplish health versus just, okay, well, here's what I've been told I have. And way too often. I hear, this is what I was told I have, and they don't know why I have it, and they don't know what to do about it. I mean, how, how frustrating to live a life like that. So you have established for each one of these different biomarkers that you're looking at, should it come back this way or that way, actual protocols, right?
1: Absolutely, let me, let me give you an example, Wendy. Please. Uh, I'll make it very poignant for the audience. What is, what is it easier to count to, uh, 77,000 or four? Uh-huh.
0: No, it, four, four is much easier to get to than 77,000.
1: There are 77,000 different codes for diagnoses. In my world, 90% of diseases are driven by four mechanisms. And the mechanism answers the question, why do I have that condition? And so we educate our population on those four mechanisms. And they're relatively straightforward. The first one, they may sound a little generalized, but they, when you dig under the covers, you realize they're quite simple. So the first one is repair and recovery or poor repair and recovery as a mechanism. And it's all about micronutrient intake and so if your food choices are bad or your digestion absorption are bad you're going to bruise easily you're not going to recover from colds or other ailments that you may have chronic pain will perpetuate very simple improve food choices but probably not less well not as well understood because it's very difficult to measure gut health and a lot of people just assume it's good no one's no one's is optimal gut health for absorption the second is things that drive inflammation particularly things that create sensitivities the third mechanism i call thrive versus survive and it's really fight or flight or are your hormones your adrenals your thyroid particularly um, your cortisol peaked you're not sleeping well but it's usually tied actually to inflammation in the brain so a lot of these things tie back to inflammation And then the fourth one, which then ties back to inflammation as well, is something that's almost completely ignored in all aspects of medicine everywhere in the world, alternative, functional, integrative, traditional, and that is the concept of stealth infections. When the proof that stealth infections are real is very simple. When you die, you start decomposing from within, they're already there. When you measure your blood, you have a finite level of innate immune cells like white blood cells. You don't have zero. They're always on the prowl and they're always doing something to maintain a delicate balance between infections, viruses, fungi, parasites, um, bacteria, and your immunity all the time. So when you die, your immunity goes to zero. And guess what? Voila, what's already there starts proliferating. Now, being a student at the Harvard School of Public Health in toxicology and the other, my other major was um, nutrition in the public interest, toxicology, the dose makes the poison. So some doctors are afraid of microwaves, but microwave is a very low energy form of light. Yes, if you concentrate microwaves, it can be very harmful. If you concentrate infrared light, it can be harmful. If you concentrate visible light with a laser, it can be very harmful, okay? So it's not the light, it's the dose of the light. With the infection, it's not the infections because our immune system's handling it. It's when our immune system gets compromised a little bit, some of these infections can fester. And some of the key ones are Lyme disease, uh, Helicobacter pylori, which disrupts the gut, part of the Nobel Prize in medicine, 2005 um and then other other organisms that are very common but misunderstood like chlamydia pneumoniae or chlamydia pneumoniae and then some of the viruses hsv epstein-barr things of that but it's actually very easy to deduce whether you have a bacterial viral or other type of infectious burden when you look at the white blood cell counts and the differential thereof like Neutrophils, lymphocytes, neutrophil-lymphocyte ratio, which nobody looks at. I'm one of the few in the world that looks at it. It's very basic um, that you can really tell if there's some sort of infectious process going on. And usually things like arthritis, where bone and cartilage are being inflamed, that's infectious. Alzheimer's has been proven to be an infectious disease by what are called spirochetes by a good friend of mine and, and mentor Judith McCloskey out of Switzerland, MD, PhD on the in the topic. Uh, Brian Balin has shown that chlamydia ammonia chlamydia is tied to uh, many, many cases of Alzheimer's, but it's largely ignored. You're just given a acetylcholinesterase inhibitor drug that does nothing. Uh, nicotine is an acetylcholinesterase drug with uh, arguably fewer side effects than Aricept. So, you know, they're, they're, they're going after symptoms. They're not going after causes. And so those are the four basic mechanisms, Wendy. And with those in hand, it's very easy to create protocols. And what I do is I create a funnel and we work on oral, gut, and immune health in general. And regardless of what symptoms are complained, you know, the the individual has a complaint about. And then in a month or two, we circle back to see what symptoms are remaining. And very often when we treat, you know, the nutrition, the digestion, the infections from the mouth, which are very common in people over 50, and general immune health status, getting the vitamin D up, getting vitamin A levels up, um, getting a healthy balance of macro and micronutrients, 80% of problems resolve. And then there's, okay, there's a remaining 20% that are more complex, but usually manageable. We we've, right now are in the process of treating one of the most highly demented individuals you'll you'll have ever seen. You are know, wheelchair-bound, sleeping 20 hours a day. The only thing I ever heard from her in the first year of treatment would be a low, dull moan. Today, she's conversant. Today, she can get out of her wheelchair with help and walk. Um, her skin was like onion paper and it's now normal. Her gait is better. All, she was on death's door because she was losing so much weight. She was under 90 pounds, now she's 118 pounds. These are the kinds of out- outcomes you can get, but we started with basic things, digestion, absorption, immune supporting supplements and foods. And in her case, we, we did some anti-inflammatory pharmaceuticals that I consider extremely safe and risk benefit profile is beyond reproach. And she's very vulnerable and tolerated them very well. So those are the kinds of things that we can achieve When we're given the opportunity to really delve deep into people's risk portfolio and physiological states.
0: Wow, that's incredible! And wow, I'm just I'm still processing that because I I, that is one of the the conditions that people feel so hopeless around. They you know Uh it's just they just have lined up with well that's the that's the destiny. Uh, because there's not many stories like that not that I mean I think anybody who knows me knows that I believe that miracles are happening all over the place all around us at all times which is probably why I've never lined up with a negative destiny (laughs) or outcome or diagnosis over my life but for the most part I think that's one of those diseases where people are very afraid of it because it's it's very hard on family members and the person obviously going through it but the fact that
1: let me tell you let me tell you a story about alzheimer's it's a complicated disease more because of the family dynamics so Mm. you go to a neurologist and i'm not a neurologist and so the caregiver say it's the wife or the husband says this dude's not even a neurologist what does he know okay but my mentor at harvard was an ophthalmologist And so what does an ophthalmologist have to do with brain problems? Well, the eye, the retina is an outcropping of the brain, but you don't have to rip the skull off to see what's going on under the covers. You can see it because the eye is transparent. You can see it and measure it. Glaucoma, and this is not me, this is well-published. Glaucoma is Alzheimer's of the eye, and Alzheimer's is glaucoma of the brain. They're the exact same pathology. So the the way you stop Alzheimer's is delay its onset by five years. If you delay the onset of Alzheimer's by five years, you reduce fifty percent of the cases. And how you delay it five years is detecting it early, and then going over the four mechanisms that I just talked about to improve the resilience of that person, and particularly that person's brain and the, and the vessels that support the the neurons um, and the connections in the brain. So. Is, is glaucoma screening perfect one-for-one for, one for Alzheimer's? No, but it is a neurodegenerative process, so that disease unto itself is not a disease of pressure in the eye, it's a neurodegenerative process and needs to be addressed from a whole-body systemic perspective, not just getting drops from your ophthalmologist or optometrist. However, how Dr. Trump established the connection even before it was published, is he was treating glaucoma and macular degeneration as a systemic disease with manifestation in the eye. And many of his patients would come back or particularly the caregiver and say, hey, by the way, my husband's vision is better. And by the way, he's remembering things better as well. So sometimes when we treat, we're not treating the eye with drops. In that case, we're treating the body systemically. And so the retina and the eye is not the only tissue that would be would be receiving benefit from that treatment. And if there are common pathways, guess what? They're both going to respond.
0: That's amazing. Human body is amazing. Yes. So cool. Uh, and another thing, too, just from listening as you are, you know, walking through even the results that you've gotten from. Or, uh, with this dementia patient, it's not really a long process I, with compliance. It seems that this idea that we have to do, you know, really sacrifice so many things for like a really, really long time before we see any benefit. I just don't believe that's true, and I feel like that's the case as well for you from from what you experience. Would you say it it, it with compliance? Obviously, that's being key. People are actually compliant and will and will follow the program. Right. Um, it's not a long process to optimal health.
1: So with something as profound as dementia, Dr. Carter, the medical director of my team, says it's a two-year process. However, if you go chasing down rabbit holes that are inappropriate or uh, not really related to the disease, you can waste a lot of time. And so what my mentors at Harvard taught me is where to look where to look, and that's thus the four mechanisms, four basic mechanisms, with this chronic infection being something that's relatively novel, but actually well-published and well-understood. So really, if you know where to look, and you get people moving in the right direction, so I, I don't work with people frequently. It's not like you're coming every week for coaching or something like this. It's, it's you work down this path, a couple months circle back we'll do a 15-minute check-in if that's going well you keep going that way and we're going to layer this new one on because they don't we don't want to confound two pieces of two interventions at the same time so you, now you go down this path and then down this path and lo and behold we see people getting better most of the time
0: awesome what is some I feel like there's so many different conversations to have and people are especially more aware now of where the medical industry has not necessarily been for them. What are some things or even just one thing that that you might want to touch on that's you know either on your heart or that really just you wish more people knew about that would help them that you can give them, maybe explain and even give them a tool for today?
1: Well, it's, it's a, that's an interesting question, Winnie, I can have many rabbit holes, but I'll sort of reiterate a point I made before and um, you know, explain why it's so important. Innate immunity is everything. So something as simple as a white blood cell count is what you must demand from your doctor, not just a lipid panel, and a metabolic panel with glucose, and then sodium, potassium, and a lot of these things that have no relevance really to um, long-term health. You need to want you you need to get a white blood cell count with differential. You get 18 different markers. You get the total white blood cell counts You get the neutrophils percent absolute. You get you can calculate the neutrophil the lymphocyte ratio. Um, red blood cell distribution width is an extremely important marker of inflammation and what's going on at the vascular level. Look, the reason why the Jap- Japanese women outlive American women by six years, six or seven years, and American women outlive American men by five to six years, so that's a, that's a eleven to thirteen year difference. It's all in what they eat and the health of their vessels that make the difference. And a white blood cell count with differential can tell you exactly what's going on inside your vessels, or or exactly is probably too strong a word, but give you a very good sense of what's going on. And also as you undergo things to improve your health, looking at the change in those values will be very helpful to guide you as to whether you're going in the right direction or not. But if you just go out and and look at, um, do simple searches, but never on Google, you wanna go to um, PubMed, National Library of Medicine, and don't be fearful of these databases because, you know, read the abstracts. Usually, even though they're a little bit of medical speech, you read a few of them and you'll beget, you'll become more fluent in, in that language quite quickly. And look at some of these studies. And, and the key things you want to look at is like C-reactive protein and mortality. And read And look at those studies and you'll see uh, on your own, if you don't work with me, what the right level of C-reactive protein really should be if you want to be optimally healthy white blood cells, you'll find, you'll find that data out there. It's, it's published in huge studies like the Women's Health Initiative, Man um, study, there's any, any number of studies that are out there that'll help. See, because at the end of the day, doctor translated, uh, or physician translated into the Latin is teacher, okay? And your doctor is teaching you nothing, zero. Okay. So that means you have to be self-taught. So the best way to get the best health care is to educate yourself. And the, the reason why I caution Google is because the amount of money the drug companies have and other or institutions have that are promoting your bad health, including the USDA, you know, uh, farm subsidies for junk food, You've got to go into the scientific literature and you even have to read that with a jaded eye because there's a lot of biased information out there. But you'll almost never get the truth. Like if you go to look for information on cholesterol in a Google search or some other search engine, because the industry is so powerful, the search terms all direct you to information they want you to read. So you really have to go in and look at the actual research. And that's where you learn. So I know that's a challenge, Wendy, but if if you're going to a- attain health freedom, knowledge precedes freedom, always. Understanding of what's wrong with the system and what, what it should be. You have to know that.
0: I think that's the best tool ever given on this podcast thus far. <laughs> I'm a huge proponent of education, which is the, really the reason this even started is that that's, you know, that's my heart as a patient advocate, helping them understand, not just necessarily telling them what to do, but educating them. So they feel empowered to ask questions and make choices that are best for them. So thank you for that so much. (laughs) Uh, that's amazing. And I'm sure that people, um, you know, will, will, really utilize that and find that there's a lot of power uh, in that one tool alone, let alone everything else you've shared, which by the way, this has been, you should see my notes. I I just took a ton of notes just as uh, we were talking. I feel so, so fortunate to get to have these conversations. So thank well, you Wendy, for your time.
1: What, what we do, Wendy, I, I'm sorry, to, I, I know. No, go happening. for it. No. What we do on HealthRevivalPartners.com, we have a blog, and we announce. If you sign up for our information, we announce weekly webinars, Monday at noon Eastern and Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you're intimidated by reading the literature, we have three doctors on that on those live webinars. There's chat Q&A, and we delve deep into topics. It's not a superficial webinars. If you're looking, you know, just a a very simple thing, how do I measure my A1C? That's, that's not what our podcast is about. We are really helping people fundamentally understand their health. And it's shocking the number of people that attend, that are contributing content to the discourse that sometimes our doctors aren't aware of. And, you know, it's a big Mm -hmm. world out there. So it's really, I would say our podcasts are really an educational forum in root cause health.
0: Amazing. And they can find that. when you say I will put in the show notes uh the website so that they can delete, you know, link directly, but will you just repeat for anyone who's
1: so our our website is Health Revival Partners, because you know you do most of the you as our partner do most of the work. So health revival partners with an S dot com. And then just if you we shamelessly give a pop-up menu that says, you know, subscribe to our channel, and mm-hmm. then you will get weekly notifications on sundays as to the webinar topic of the week and monday and tuesday are basically the same thing we do it at different times because of different time zones and whatnot but they're always a little bit different and uh those are just ongoing and then our blog usually announces them as well and when i have the time because i like producing my own videos then we put them out on youtube or bit depending on how controversial uh, the topic or the title would would appear in the search
0: engines amazing that's awesome thank you so much for for that and um, i will also make sure to add that into the show notes for anyone who might be driving and (laughs) wants to make sure that they are able to to connect with you and and learn from you I'm so thankful for your time today and just sharing your expertise. I'm really looking forward to the book that you're working on. No pressure. (laughs) Uh but um, I'm really excited about that as well. And I'd love for you to come back on uh, when that's ready to go. So we can uh, talk about that in more depth as well. Thank you again very much for your time today.
1: My pleasure, Wendy.
0: And for all of those who are listening, if this is something that you found helpful that you believe would be helpful for people you love, please do share this podcast with them. Reviews are always helpful. Obviously that helps the podcast get uh, two more people, helps the reach, but I'm so passionate about community and just loving each other. Well, sometimes it's best just to do a quick text to people, check in on them and say, by the way, I thought of you while I was listening to this and I hope it helps or brings some hope. So thank you all for listening as well. I'll be back again soon with another episode. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to whole healthy and free. I will be back soon with another edition of the podcast. I invite you to check out my next episode once it becomes available on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. Until then, stay focused, insist on the truth, and do not quit. You are so much stronger than you realize.